Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. But giving is hard. Do we put too much value on money or things? Are we simply afraid we'll have to do without? Or do we just not see how our giving can make a difference? Join us for a three-part series on living open-handed. Well, we are in a series uh, that we started last week. It is a three-part series on being open-handed. Obviously, that means we're going to talk about the idea of giving and what comes with giving. Now, I'm just going to stop here and say what I said last week. This is not a concerted effort to raise funds for the building. This is not a manipulative tactic where I'd said, okay, let me preach on giving while I'm talking about giving to the building fund. No, because here's the thing you need to know. I'm at least 12 months out with what I'm going to preach. I already know who will be here on Thanksgiving Sunday and what we will be preaching on Thanksgiving Sunday. So this was designed a year ago. The opportunity to purchase this building, we've only had that happen in February. This is a very recent thing that has come to pass. And so uh, it appears that the only one who knew these two events would collide was God. So we could say it's a coincidence, or we could say, I guess God knew we needed to talk about this at this time. So don't blame me. You can blame him. Don't blame me. All right. So this series about being open-handed is designed around three truisms. I'm going to give you a sentence each week that is a truism. And that means that pretty much you're going to discover it's a principle in life that applies. Last week, we began with this one. It's easier to give what isn't yours. It's easier to give what isn't yours. I wish that we could do the offering for the building fund and trade wallets first. Because, I mean, we know it would just be easier to give what isn't yours. If you did not hear last week's message, I'm going to encourage you to go back online and get that because it's the foundational message for the whole series. As a result, it's probably the most important one. I hope it's not the best one, or otherwise we're just going downhill for like three weeks, and that'd be just miserable for all of you guys. Like, man, every week it just gets worse. Hopefully not the best one, but definitely the most important one. We can't do anything with giving until we recognize who it belongs to. And when we get that, everything else I have to say can fall into place, okay? Today, second number, second number two, second truism is this. We have to give what we want to get. We have to give what we want to get. So if we're going to talk about becoming open-handed people, one of the things we have to do up front is go ahead and recognize why we're not. We've got to go ahead and look in a mirror and say, why do I personally struggle to be open-handed? Why do I struggle to give? And the answer is going to be different for every single one of us. And actually, the answer may be different for you at a different time in your life. So there are some answers we could come up with. One of them might be, I struggle to be open-handed because of materialism. I like stuff. I like stuff, and I want more stuff, and I want new stuff. And that don't, don't feel bad if you're there. I'm not throwing stones at anybody. Matter of fact, if anybody doesn't struggle with that, you get to preach next week. Because, I mean, I'm even one of those people that's like, you know, I've got a TV, and I still walk in the Best Buy going, ooh, look how much nicer that TV is. It's curved, and it's bigger, and that would be awesome. And Yeah, anyway, you know, I mean, and, and then you get a nice TV, and so then I'm like, well, you know, we need a new couch because, you know, the just doesn't feel that comfortable. Like, I got this TV now, you know, I need to get like a movie theater thing, like cup holder right here, right? I mean, come on, look, we're all there. And, and you get a car and your car is great. And then six years later, you're looking around like, oh, I want one of those cars. Okay, we all deal with the I want stuff and I want new stuff. Maybe a second thing that some of us deal with is fear. If I give things, I'm not sure I'll have enough for me. 
Maybe another thing that we struggle with is just an unwise financial practice. Uh, you know, sometimes we want to give money and it's just not there to give because you, you're already three months behind on a bill and you're thinking, well, if I give this away, then how am I going to pay that? So to make you all feel better, I'll just go ahead and tell you, my wife and I, we've struggled with all three. We've done all three. I know what that feels like. You know, we definitely very early in our lives, we, we wanted a lot of stuff, we got a lot of stuff, and we did that by the help of unwise financial practices and our good friend Visa. We just go window shopping. Turns out we weren't window shopping. Somehow window shopping, we always came home with stuff we didn't have money for. And uh, so we've learned not to window shop. But then also, because my wife, she grew up in a communist country. I mean, she grew up the majority of her, her adolescence and childhood standing in bread lines and, and under one of the worst dictators in recent history. And so, uh, unfortunately, ingrained in her is the idea, I don't know if there will be enough. I don't know if there will be any there. I don't know if I will get what I need. And so even to this day, that's one thing that she still kind of works through is, oh, I'd love to give, but... There's just that apprehension that sometimes maybe we were raised in a home where there wasn't a lot of money and there's something there we don't even know is there. So what we need to do is discover what's happening here so that we can become like this. We've got to ask that question. So today what I want us to do is look at a passage. <coughs> you give me that water. Look at a passage that's going to help us discover the process of, of what, what's taking place inside of us. Because once we do that, then we can begin to open up our hands and see. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the passage we're going to use is not something that you would normally use if you're talking about giving. It's not that kind of passage. It's not one that would immediately come to mind. But there's something really profound that happens in this story that I think will change how we view giving. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind my head. 1 Kings chapter 16, it's in the Old Testament right before the book of Psalms. And we're actually going to look at a pretty large passage today, so I'm just going to go ahead and give you a heads up. We're going to do a lot of reading here. And we're going to jump around a little here at the first just to set the stage. And so it starts like this. We've got a new king. If you've read any of the book of Kings, it's really just telling us what keeps happening with each king. We've got a new king and a new king and a new king and this, a good king and a bad king, and this kind of how this is going down. So now a guy named Ahab shows up. Verse 33, at the end of the chapter says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Wow. It wasn't that long ago, just a couple of months ago, we did a message about legacy. And we talked about good legacies and bad legacies. And if you remember, I talked about a guy named Jeroboam, one of the kings. And he had such a bad legacy and a bad reputation that every king who did something bad was said to have done it in the ways of Jeroboam. Well, it actually said in the sentence right before this is, as if it were a light thing to do like Jeroboam. He went and topped it. I mean, so this is pretty serious. You got to understand, Ahab has topped the worst reputation out there of all the kings. Everybody's been named after Jeroboam for being a bad guy. And suddenly he's like, it would have been easy for him to do Jeroboam. He's managed to top it all together. What did he do? Well, every other king, they disobeyed God. They didn't do all that God asked. And, and some of them skipped a few more than others. They said, well, we don't want to do that commandment. Well, we don't want to honor God this day or this way. Or I want to sin like this, and I don't care what God thinks. And so that's what every other bad king had done. But Ahab did something way over the top. He said, forget sinning against God. I'm going to replace him. And so he took the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, and said, he's not our God. Here's who will be our God. Baal. 
It was a God from the land that they had moved into. If you remember, they went into the land, and one of the reasons they were supposed to conquer the land was so they wouldn't be influenced by the people and their false gods. And this is exactly what has happened now. So Ahab says, we're going to let this Canaanite God, because they're in the land of Canaan, this Canaanite God of Baal is going to be our God. He's the God of rain. He's the God of fertility. So check this out. God says, oh, well, well, we're going to have to see about that. So he sends a prophet. prophet's name was Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. If your Bible could have my, my subtitle in it, I would like for your Bible right here to be subtitled, The Battle of the Gods. I think that's what this whole story is about. It's the battle of the gods. And it really all comes down to this. God's up in heaven going, excuse me, you want to replace me with some supposed pretend God of rain? Okay, we'll see about that. And so he sends a prophet to say, I tell you what, God says, it's not going to rain from the minute I speak till the next time I say so. You think your God is the one that provides? You think Baal is the one who provides rain? Well, we're going to prove to you that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is the one who provides everything, not just rain. And so there's a drought, and the drought was about one thing, the battle of the gods. Chapter 18, verse 1, jump over there real quick. It says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. I guess you can say that's after many days. In the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Why three years? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're asking God to come do something and you honestly feel like he is just not paying attention to you anymore? Because it's just been such a long time. Maybe you had something you wanted, you didn't get what you wanted, so you had something that you needed, you didn't get what you needed. You're beginning to think if God even notices anymore. And here's the reason that sometimes it takes a while. And the same reason it took them three years, because sometimes it takes a while to get our attention. And it took a while for them to have no excuses because here's what it came down to. Baal was the god of rain, but Baal wasn't alone. Since Baal was only the god of rain and they had other gods who did other things when it's not raining, they don't want their god to look weak. So Baal would voluntarily work with his counterpart. That guy's name was Mott. And so Mott would show up and help out during the dry season and he was the god of death and barrenness and dryness. So when it was raining, they were like, oh, praise Baal, praise Baal. And when it was not raining, they were like, oh, it's Mott's turn. Praise Mott, praise Mott. And so if there was a drought for three months, they would have given all credit to Mott. If there was a drought for six months, they would have given credit to Mott. If there was a drought for a year, they would have given credit to Mott and Baal for finally showing up. God says, we're going to do this long enough to prove to you your God is not a God and his friend, well, it ain't his turn either. That's what God is up to. We're going to go three years on this to prove to you that you can't make anything happen until I do. So here we go, verse 17. We're going to get to the fun part of this story. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? How many of you love getting blamed for something when you're the innocent guy? I mean, that's what's going on here. It's like, you're the prophet who said it won't rain. You're the one we all hate. Everybody hates you. You're our troubler. You're the one that causes all the problems. Be glad God did not call you to be an Old Testament prophet. So Elijah answered, hey, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, here's my idea. Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel 
and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was the queen. She was his wife. And so not only have they said, we're not going to follow God, we're going to worship Baal, they are literally funding the existence of this religion. 950 prophets eat at their expense. They take it pretty seriously, don't you think? So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Of course they're not going to answer a word. Have you ever, parents in the room, you ever had a child did something so stupid and wrong, they knew it was stupid and wrong, and you're looking at them like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? You're grounded. And they're just, and then they're like, what are they going to say? They know what they did was stupid and wrong. Or maybe none of you are parents yet. You're not parents yet, but you're, you're the kid who's going to, yeah. I mean, so they knew. They know, okay, we walked away from God, so we followed Bell. Well, it hasn't rained and Bell's not showing up. So, you know, we're, we're just, best answer we got right now. So then Elijah said to the people, since they won't talk, I, even I only, I love it, it's kind of like the pity thing kind of going on here. Only I am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. <clears throat> let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And then you call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of the Lord. Check this out. Not my God, but the Lord. I, I just love how he always takes every opportunity to, to, to remind us who there's only one true God. He doesn't even see this as a fight. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now the people have something to say. This is a good idea. We're tired of it not raining. We're tired of it. We're, come on, bring it on. Let's get an answer. Let's get this thing straightened out here. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So at noon, Elijah mocked them. I love this. It's like, I must be like a descendant of Elijah. <laughs> at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. There are so many like high school teachers I need to repent of for being like an Elijah in their classroom. And you know, I have people tell me all the time, like, I believe I have the spirit of sarcasm. Like, that's my spiritual gift, the spirit of sarcasm. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, pretty sure there's no biblical evidence for the gift of sarcasm, but if you're ever going to try for it, this is your one passage right here. All right, come on. He's a man of God. He had the gift of sarcasm, mockery, got it all right there. I think that's where you inherited it, right there. There you go. Wrong prophet, buddy, not Elijah. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blush, blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. There's something really significant happening here that I want you to see. They began in the morning, and they went through the heat of the day up until noon. Then they had their mockery festival. And then they began to... Uh, to, to mutilate themselves and to cut themselves to try to get their God's attention. 
And so then they went into the afternoon and they made it to about tea time and nothing had happened. Nothing has happened all morning. Nothing happened at lunch. Nothing happened midday. And they get to this phrase, the time of oblation. What in the world is that? Turns out it's incredibly significant. The time of oblation was one of the two sacrifices that were set up by Moses, by God. He brought them into the promised land and he says, here's what I want you to do. Command the people. And so Moses taught the people, command the people every day. Every day, they will get up in the morning and they will sacrifice a lamb to me. And every evening at dusk, as the sun is setting at twilight, they will sacrifice again to me. And this is simply to remind them that I am their God and they are my people. This is to remind them that this is the place where I will meet with them. At this temple where they make the sacrifice, I will meet with them. I will speak to them. I will reveal myself to them. I am their God, and they are my people. Now, it would go, obviously, without saying, since they've stopped worshiping the Lord as God and they're worshiping Baal, they've quit these sacrifices. The daily reminder that he's our God and we are his people, and this is where we hear from him, which would also tell you chances are the only thing they've heard from God in a long time is Elijah. God says, stop it. God says, stop it. God says, stop it. Matter of fact, it's not going to rain. And then Elijah runs off and hides. Then they don't hear anything at all. They've not heard anything because they're no longer worshiping God. And so this is the time of day. I mean, if just, when you just look at what God does, he's so cool. God's like, I'm not just going to randomly show up at like 1.30. No, no, no. I've got a time. I've set aside a time to remind you. I'm your God. You're my people. And I'm going to show up at that time. So here we are. They've had all day long, from early morning through lunch, through midday, the sun is about to set. And as it starts to get darker over the landscape, they're about to see the greatest light show they've ever seen. And I need to set the context to help you understand this. I want you just to imagine what's going on. It would be similar for us with like the day where the president gets inaugurated. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? And a lot of people gather and the streets are filled and the mall is filled and, and, and there's people everywhere. And, and it would seem like everybody is there, but the reality is no, everybody's not there. <clears throat> Many of us still have jobs. Some of us might actually catch a little on TV, but the rest of us, we're living our lives. We're going about our day. We're still at work. So we get the, the idea from this story that maybe all of Israel has come out. Well, that's not possible. All of Israel is too big and too far spread. But I do want you to get this idea. Mount Carmel is about 1,600 feet high, and it stands alone. I mean, it's, it's pretty just out of, the, out of the valley, this valley of Jezreel that goes for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And it's right near the Mediterranean Sea. And so you can imagine that people as far away, many miles away, they're out and they're working in the fields, they're, they're, they're bringing in the harvest, or they're working on the roof on their house, whatever it is they're doing. For as far as people can see, they know way over there, that mountaintop, and, and, and it's not like the Rockies of Colorado, but it's, it's got a, like a flat plain kind of a plateau. You can go up on Mount Carmel, you can stand and do this sort of thing. So they know, everybody's heard, there's a showdown over there. Something's going on over there. But there are people so far spread across the valley that they can't even tell people are moving around. Some of them are a little closer, a few miles closer. They can at least see something going around. They got good eyesight, a little bit of blurry stuff moving around, you know, that kind of thing. So I want you to imagine now, here we are at the point. The sun is setting. See, God didn't show up in the middle of the bright sun with a lightning flash that, you know, would have been easily missed. God is waiting until the time that they're supposed to acknowledge he's God. Waiting until the time when the sun is setting, 
It is dusk. And as far as you're going to be able to see, there is about to be the most incredible light show. So Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And so the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. That means there was probably another time when there was an uh, act of worship, some sort of sacrifice done here. And so he's taking it, and he's building it back. And so Elijah, again, I love this. Everything that he's doing is he's reminding them who their God is. This isn't just a showdown between two powers. He keeps saying there's one God and one counterfeit, one guy. So here's what he does. He says, 12 stones according to the number of the tribes. I, I bet he was even naming them. Here we go. This is the tribe of Dan. Danites out there? Tribe of uh, Gad. Gad. Gadites out there? I mean, he's taking his 12 stones according to the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench all the way around the altar, as great as would contain two sails of seed. And then he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he did what we all think we would do. I mean, he's getting ready to set it on fire. So he does the most logical thing in the world, and he says, put water on it. Are you kidding me? Yeah, here's what I want you to do. See these water jars right here, four water jars. Fill them up with water, and then pour it on the burnt offering. And they did. So he says, go fill them up again and do it again. What? But they did. He says, go fill it up again and do it again. And, but they did. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's going to ask for three things. Did you catch it again, by the way? He didn't just say, oh, my God, I hope you show up. No, no, no. He's reminding them who it is we're talking to. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Three things. Number one, let it be known this day, you are God. If we do anything else, let's get this one. Let it be known this day, you are God. Number two, that I'm your servant and I've done these things at your word. I would do the same if I were in his place. Hey, God, there's a lot of angry people around here. It'd be helpful if you, like, let them know I'm on your side. Appreciate that one. Now let's get back to business. Number three, I love this one. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now I want you to see two really important things happening here. The demonic forces and the false prophets of Baal, when their God, when they wanted his attention, they cut themselves. They mutilated their flesh. They destroyed the temple of God. When a holy God shows up, he says, no, 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 let me, let me show you that I'm the one that is turning you to me. And I know today we have some teenagers and some, it's become kind of a thing for people to struggle with cutting. It's always been a thing, as you can tell, it's been around for, for a millennia, actually. But what you need to know is that it's an incredibly demonic practice to say that by destroying the temple, the holy temple of the holy God, that you will somehow get God's attention. But it's a demonic lie that comes from a practice with a false God. A holy God says, no, 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 I'm the one that's coming to turn your heart to me. You don't need to do that. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is is God, not Baal, the Lord. He is 
God. So obviously a little bit later in the story and in a little while the heavens grew black. The heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. Now, the question we all need to ask is, why water? What, what was the point of the water? Now, if you've ever heard this preached, you will hear one answer. There's always one answer given, and one answer is correct, but I don't think it's just one. I actually think there are two, and I think one answer goes unspoken way too often. So let's do the obvious one first. Well, the obvious reason is to make sure there's no mistake about who did it. There's no accidental credit given to someone else, right? They've been calling for Baal to come down with fire all day long. Come down with fire, come down with fire. And so if Elijah had just got it all put together and suddenly fire falls, they would have said, oh, look, Baal finally just showed up. That's Baal. We did that. You know how we do this with like jars. You're like trying to open a jar. You can't get the jar open. You're trying to get the jar open. You give it to somebody and say, hey, can you open this? And they go. And what do they say? Oh, I loosened it for you. Spirit of Baal on you, just so you know that. Because that's what they would have done. If fire had just hit that, as soon as Elijah had it ready, they would have said, oh, Baal has finally shown up. We've been calling on him all day. Look at this. This was Baal. Elijah had to make sure Baal couldn't get credit. The other thing we need to know is that since rain and lightning are sometimes together because of thunderstorms, Baal also got credit for lightning. So if a random lightning strike had just come out of the earth or out of the sky and, and hit this thing and consumed it, they would have said, look, Baal has shown up. And so Elijah needs to make sure this thing is so wet, lightning is not going to strike soaked wood. Lightning is not going to strike standing water, right? And so the first thing, the obvious thing that you hear preached all the time is, is we need to make sure this was God and not some other false God. That's why Elijah said, pour out the water. That may be why Elijah said, pour out the water. But here's the question, why did God say, pour out the water? God said, you want to see it rain in a drought? Then pour out your water. You want to see it rain in a drought? I want you to take what's most precious to you. I want you to take what's most hard-earned, and I want you to pour it out. You have to give what you want to get. You have to give what you want to get, and here's why. Because the first thing that God is after in every single one of us is for us to have the answer to this question. Is our trust in our provision or our provider? Is our trust in our provision or our provider? Here you are on top of a mountain with a little bit of water on a day when there's a drought for three years. And you could be very thankful for the water that you have and be very grateful because your God, Baal, hasn't shown up in a long time, so you are hoarding what little bit you have. And Elijah says, hey, you want to see God make it rain? You want to see an abundance come from heaven so much that you can't control it? Then take everything you have and pour it into the sand. And I want you to do it again. And I want you to do it again. And I want you to do it until, did y'all notice this? This is the Middle East. Sand, three-year drought. And they poured out enough water over and over and over that eventually they managed to get the ground completely saturated to a point they had standing water. Do you know what that took? I want you to think about this. Where did water come from in the middle of a drought? There's a debate, honestly, there's a debate. We don't know. We've got two really good ideas on where this water came from. First of all, we're not that far from the Brook Kidron that flows in from the Mediterranean Sea. The second thing is that Mount Carmel was filled with all kinds of caves and grottos that would have been filled with water from springs. And it's highly likely that since they're inside caves where it's cooler and out of the sun, that some of that water would have still been there. So they've got one of two options. 
They've got these jars on top of the mountain. And Elijah looks at him and says, I want you to fill those with water. Well, they've either got to go 1,600 feet down the, the mountain to the brook Kidron and fill them up and carry them back up 1,600 feet just so he can say, oh, thanks. Hey, can you pour that out? Or they at least had to go several hundred feet down into a cave and fill them up and bring them back several up, up several hundred feet so he could say, good, now pour it out. I could just imagine. I mean, I, rest, I wish there was so much more to this story. Like, they just kind of cut out all the dialogue of like, excuse me, what? You know it's a drought. You know we're in the Middle East. You know how hot it is carrying these things of water up and down? And you just told us to go get it. We brought it. That was enough because I'm not interested in seeing your God show off. And you made us carry it. And now you're going to say, pour it out? Fine. Do whatever you want then. Here you go. Now go do it again. Excuse me? Who do you think I work for? I mean, can you just imagine this back and forth and back and forth? Elijah looking at him and saying, come on. You want to see it rain, don't you? All right. They take the jugs and they go back down the mountain. They come back up. Good. Now pour it out. All right. Call down fire. No. Go do it again. Seriously. You want to see it rain, don't you? You have to give what you want to get. Because we need to know. Is your trust in what little bit of water you have right here that you think Baal gave you? Or is your trust in your provider? You see, if we go back to this whole thing, what is the drought about? What is the whole battle of the gods about? Water. This whole thing is about water and who they think is their provider. And God says, you want me to show up? Then pour out everything that you have. You have to give what you want to get. You have to give what you want to get. We have it backwards. We do it like this. I'm going to pray, and when God gives, I'm going to give out of my extra. It'll be easy. I'm going to have it then to give away to people. That's why I'm saying, God, give me some so I can give some away. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to give some away. I'll give out of my extra. And God says, no, you're going to give before I answer the prayer out of what you have, out of the lack of what you have, and then I'm going to know that your trust is in me. We have it backwards. We have to give what we want to get. And if you think I'm making this up and you say, well, this is just one story. I think your point's a little weak, Jimmy. I'm not sure that you can really do this. Really? You want me to take you through the whole Bible? How about this? Let's go back to Abraham. God told Abraham, you are going to be a father of the multitudes. Unfortunately, Abraham and his wife were barren. They couldn't have any children. And so by miracle, they have one. Not when he has 100 kids. Not when he has 50 kids. Not when he has 10 kids. Not when he has two kids. When he has only one kid that he can't even make happen again by himself because he's barren. God says, give me that one. You have to give what you want to get. Elijah, right after he said there's going to be a drought for three years, he had to run off and hide because he was obviously not the most popular guy in town anymore. And so he comes upon some widow who has nothing because of the drought, right? She's not going to be his biggest fan either. And she says to him, I've got a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour, and I'm going to make a cake, and my son and I, we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And what does Elijah say? Good idea. Make it, except give it to me. You have to give what you want to get. But if you give it to me, you're never going to run out. Fortunately for her, she obeyed. She never ran out. We could keep going. It's a biblical concept. Here's what God is after. Is your trust in your provision or your provider? You will always have to give what you want to get. Now, I could stop right there. 
Because that preaches good, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are already inspired and you're already ready to go, all right, man, I got I to gotta deal with this. And I'm going to mess you up really bad. Because that's not the point today. You see, if we stopped right there, some of you would misunderstand the point. You would get this idea, oh man, I got to give because I can get. If I give to get, we would find ourselves stepping into a realm that some people call a prosperity gospel. If I just give, I'll get. And there's so much truth to that because God is a giver. And as we learned last week, I mean, if you take something and you put it into God's kingdom, he's going to give more for you to put into God's kingdom. It's just, you can't keep up. You can't outgive God. And anytime you're giving, God's going to give back. And, and you can't stop that. The problem, though, is when we are doing it to get, when we're giving to get, giving to get. And it becomes this game of, well, I just got to pass the test. If I give, then God's going to keep giving to me. And I'm giving only so that I can get. If I give, then I will get. Give water, you get rain. Give and get. But here's the thing I want you to know. Giving shouldn't be about getting. And yes, because God is good and because his principles work, you can't stop the fact that it's going to come. But it shouldn't be about getting. Here's what giving is really about. Giving is about discovering and removing false gods. Did you notice that's what really happened? Let's go back to Mount Carmel again. I want you to give me your water. What were they really about to get? Not rain. Fire. What they were really about to get. Give me your water and what you will really get is the false God called out and the true God showing up. If you will give, you will discover what really exists in your heart and then you'll discover who the true God is that can meet your needs. That's what happened Rain came after they recognized they had a false god. Rain came after they recognized the true God and bowed down and called him that. It wasn't give water, get rain. It was give water and get a revelation of the false gods that rule your life. So you don't actually give to get. You give to discover and to dethrone the false gods in your life. Now, right now, many of you are going, who cares? I don't have a little shrine to Baal in my house. I haven't heard Baal worship is all that current in 2017. And you're probably right. Baal worship is not too current in 2017. Most of you think you're off the hook, but you're not. Because none of us are. The God on our, the throne of our hearts, the false God we deal with may not be named Baal, but well, here are some examples. It could be named security that says to you, I can't give because I need it for my future. Remember the story we heard at the, the beginning of the message where that's the very thing. They had saved up money for their future to either pay off a house or buy cars and God told them to do a very dramatic gift. It was a very dramatic gift God called them to do. Maybe the fault God is fear. It says, I can't give because I, 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 there won't be enough for me. Or if I do give, I, I, how can I know that God's going to show up? Maybe the false God is, is the God of hard work that says, I can't give because I don't want to give because I earned it. I worked hard. And I wouldn't have to give to those people if they'd stop being so lazy and work hard themselves. Why should I make up for their laziness? Maybe it's the false God of selfishness that says, well, I can't give simply because it's, it's mine. Maybe it's the false God of materialism that says, I can't give because I, I want that, because my life will be better if I have that. Maybe I can't give because the false god of greed says, I, I can't give because I just need more. More. I, I just need 
more. You see, we have to give, but we don't give to get. We get to recognize, we give to recognize the false gods that have set themselves up in our lives, the false values and the things that we think will provide for us so that we can recognize the true God. Give what you want to get. Then fire comes. And fire reveals the false gods, but recognizes the true God. And then you do get something. You know what you get? You get an end to the drought. You get an end to the drought. And that's important because here's the reality. Droughts are not a normal part of God's plan for his people. I want you all to hear what I'm saying right now. I do not believe that droughts are a normal plan for God's people. God is good. God blesses his people. God provides for his people. God went as far in the Old Testament to say, I'm going to give you some names for me. And you can call upon these names anytime you need them. And one of those names was, I am the Lord your God, your provider. You will not lack. You will not go without. You will be abundantly blessed because I am your God and you are my people. And he's only asked for one thing in exchange forever and still does to this day. And that is that I will be your God. So if you're recognizing a drought in your life, if there's a drought in your finances, if there's a drought in some other area, if you started out, you just had a nice desire, God, you know, it'd be nice if you did this, and you felt like God never did anything, and you started a drought. Then it became a want. God, I'd really like for you to do this, and God never did anything, and the drought continued. And it reached a point where now it's a need, and you're thinking, are you kidding, God? You won't even meet my need. This drought is so extensive. Well, it took three years to get their attention. The question is, why is it taking so long to get yours? If you're facing a drought, I'm going to bet God has initiated a battle of the gods in your life. And he will not let any other false god win. No. The drought will remain until fire falls and consumes everything that's not real. And he is shown to be exactly who he is. And you do exactly what they did, and that is fall on your face and say, the Lord, he is God. Not my stuff, not my greed, not my accumulation, not my future, not my security. He, I can give because he's my provider, and that's where my trust is. You see, if God didn't ask us to give what we valued most when we had the least, we would never discover what's going on in here. You have to give what you want to get. Amen? I want to close by talking to those of you today that maybe you're not exactly sure about this whole Jesus thing. You know, Chris got up at communion and he, and he talked about how Jesus died on the cross for us. And Maybe you've heard a little bit about some of that before. Maybe you heard as I was talking in the message about how God says, I just want you to know that I'm the one that turns your heart back. My son is the one that died for you. You don't need to cut yourself for me. You don't need to show up in church for me every Sunday and try to check a box. You don't don't need to try to behave well. You need to recognize that I love you, that I have called you, that I'm here for you. And if for somehow you've missed that, maybe this is your first Sunday ever hearing it, or maybe you've heard it many times and, and... just let it go over your head or 
off your back or whatever the story is. Maybe today is the day where finally it's time to respond and say, thank you, Jesus, you died for me. And now I want to live for you. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that here this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come down front. You don't have to do anything weird. Just right where you are, we're all going to pray. Would you all join me? Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I do want to live for you. And my simple prayer here today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch. Church.